Well, let's open our Bibles this morning, if you would, to 1 Timothy 1, as we continue our study through this uh, epistle from the Apostle Paul to his um, young man that he's mentoring named Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. He is uh, there. He has a duty to straighten out the leadership of that church. And so this is um, uh, Theonoustos, God-breathed word that is being sent to him, giving him direction. So stand with me as we honor God's word with the reading of 1 Timothy 1, beginning with verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding us throughout your word the truth about who we are and why we are here and what we have been saved to do. May we clearly hear you in your word and respond with an obedient heart that is flooded by your goodness and grace. We ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You know, when anyone expresses interest in committing their life to Christ as a member of the church, we ask them about their testimony. And uh, we, we ask them to either write it out or sometimes people prefer, you know, they don't feel like they're good writers, so they want to know, can I just verbalize it? And yes, you can. And so what are you looking for? Well, we're not looking for a biography. We're not looking for, you know, I was uh, born in uh, Timbuktu and I grew up there and did this, and did that. Well, we're looking for two things. What is your understanding of the gospel? Is it clear? Is it biblical? Secondly, we are looking to, for what you believe, what you believe is evidence that you're a new creation in Christ. Where's the evidence? And it's not uncommon to hear, well, you know, I'm not real sure when or where I first believed, and I don't know exactly how to verbalize this, because for me, and this is kind of the testimony of my daughters, I can't remember a time when I didn't believe in Christ. I grew up in a Christian home, and I've been taught the scriptures from my youth, like Eunice and Lois did for Timothy. And others will say, you know, I grew up in a home where we went to church, but I mean, as far as biblical teaching and godly living, that was never really a part of our family. And then others can, I mean, they can pinpoint a specific time when their self-absorbed rebellion was confronted by the Lord and they were brought to faith in Christ. So not everyone's path to Christ is identical. But there are key elements that should be a part of everyone's testimony. So in our text today, um, Paul inserts his testimony. Now to better understand it, 
Here are a few facts about Paul's life that I think that you'll find helpful. Number one, he is a Jew. He is an Israelite who was born of the tribe of Benjamin and proud of it. Benjamin was the the tribe of the left-handed warriors. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. That's Turkey. He was born around 5 AD. So Paul is both a Jew and he is a Roman citizen. At an early age, uh, many believe around 15 AD, his family moved to Jerusalem when he was still just a child. And this is where he will later become a student in the rabbinical school of Gamaliel. And many believe that Gamaliel is the grandson of Halil, Rabbi Halil, who had a profound influence upon the first century Jew. And so Saul is, that's his Hebrew name, Saul is a real student of Old Testament scripture. He has been well taught in the rabbinical school of Gamaliel. By 30 AD, we know that he is a Pharisee. We read that in Philippians 3, according to Paul's own testimony. Pharisee in Hebrew means separated. Pharisee, those were a group of individuals. There were hundreds of them. They were middle-class businessmen that became leaders in the synagogues. Synagogues were scattered throughout all of Israel. Nobody was to live more than 10, 12 miles from a synagogue. And these are the guys who, uh, as, as wealthy businessmen, they, they emerged during the intertestamental period when they, they don't want Israel to ever go back into idolatry again. And so what they do is they take what the Lord says in his word, which is law, and they elaborate upon it. He says to observe the Sabbath and they'll say, here's how you observe the Sabbath. And they will spell it out. You can't walk further than uh, seven furlongs. You can't lift anything, weighs more than two figs. You can't do this. You can't do that. We're going to spell it out. It's called the oral law. It's commentary on Old Testament scripture. And it is equal in authority to the scripture. And by keeping it is how you become righteous. And so Paul considered himself in his ambition to be a member of the Sanhedrin. He was was one of the finest of Pharisees. He says so. He said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. (laughs) When it came to being self-righteous, he said, no one kept the law more faultlessly than I did. Philippians 3. His goal is to become a part of the Sanhedrin. That's the governing body of Israel. It would be like somebody today said, I'm going to get a law degree and my goal is to become a judge because my ultimate goal is to become a member of the Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of Israel. And this is where Saul has his focus. Now by 32 AD, we know that he was at the stoning of Stephen, or many believe that he was because it says that they they laid their, their coats there at the feet of Saul in Acts 7. We believe it's this Saul. 33 AD, he admits that he's a violent persecutor of Christians. That's in Acts 8. 34 AD, he goes to the high priest and secures permission to enter into the homes of Christians to arrest them and bring them to trial and put them to death. This is the whole reason he's on the road to Damascus. He's going there for those Christians. Why? Why? 
they're causing problems for the Jews. It's not just that these Jews are being converted like 3,000 were on the day of Pentecost, but these Jewish Christians are causing political and social problems with Rome. As we saw with Peter and John, when, when they are brought before the Sanhedrin, they have healed a crippled man in the name of Christ. They have been given the power through the Holy Spirit to do the same kind of miracles that Christ did to, uh, to solidify the, and verify that the gospel is from Christ. And so they're standing before the Sanhedrin and they said, look, we healed him in the name of Christ, the one you crucified. We healed him in the name of Christ, the one you rejected. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4. And Sanhedrin can't argue with them. I mean, there's the crippled man. He was known to everybody. Here he is. He's no longer crippled. So they can't argue the fact, but they go into a big discussion later as to what are we going to do with these Jewish Christians? And Saul of Tarsus, wanting to make a name for himself, wanting to impress the, the Jewish authorities, man, he has made it his mission in life to eliminate Christianity immediately. And when Christ confronts him in Acts 9, he says, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? You might want to open your Bibles to Acts 9 and write in the margins there that whenever you are attacking somebody in the church, have you ever done that? Have you ever talked about somebody in the church? You ever gossiped about somebody in the church? You ever uh, demeaned anybody in the church? When you do that, you are attacking the body of Christ. And he says, you are persecuting me, me. Those traveling with Saul, they're speechless. They're speechless. I mean, they hear this booming voice, but they see no one. There's just this blinding light of God's Shekinah glory enveloping Saul. And he's told to go to the home of Ananias, who says, oh, no. No, no, Lord. No, no. No, no. I've heard about this guy. He's pure evil. He secured authority from the chief priest to arrest us and have us put to death. I don't want him coming here. And the Lord says, no doubt about it. He's a bad one. Just like the rest of mankind. But I chose him. I chose him to carry my name before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. He will now suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias obeys and he prays and Saul's sight returns and he's baptized and he immediately does what? He immediately goes to the synagogues to share his testimony. And now the Jews want to kill him. The very people that he'd been trying to impress, now they hate him. Why? Acts 9 says he continued to confound them by proving, he was proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
Now, according to Galatians, from the year 34, when this happens in Acts 9 to about 47 AD, Paul spends most of his time preparing for ministry while he's witnessing in the synagogues of Damascus, of Arabia, of Syria, of Jordan, and the entire surrounding area. Not just the Jews, he's even taking the gospel to the Greeks. And so now the Greeks want to kill him. He's a popular guy. Everybody wants to kill him. And so he goes home to Tarsus. And Dr. Luke says the churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, when Saul goes home to Tarsus, the churches enjoyed a time of peace. <laughs> I mean, Saul's conversion was so dramatic for the culture. Saul's enthusiasm for sharing what had happened to him was so life-changing. His knowledge of the scripture was so amazing. And now his understanding of who Christ is was so clear, so accurate. Neither Jew nor Greek could refute what he said. And so it was, it was causing problems for the churches. Wherever he went, I mean, he was a target. And so when he finally leaves the area, everything kind of calms down for the churches. And then Barnabas, that's the name that means encouragement. Then Barnabas, he goes to Tarsus to get him. This is in Acts 11. All you got to do is read through the book of Acts to get this. And they take aid to the Jerusalem church before setting out on a series of missionary journeys. And they're going to... Um, preach the gospel wherever they go and they're going to establish churches throughout all of Asia Minor. Some said that, uh, that, that there's even more churches established than what we have recorded in scripture and it could exceed maybe 20 churches. Now by 48 AD, Paul, or, or Saul is his Hebrew name, who is now going to use his Roman name Paul, he is stoned for preaching the gospel in Lystra. That's Timothy's hometown. This is in Acts 14. And he continues to preach throughout Syria, throughout uh, Cilicia, throughout Macedonia, throughout Troas. When he goes to Philippi, there they put him in jail because he cast a demon out of a slave girl there in Acts 16. Then he goes on to preach in Thessalonica in Acts 17 and in Berea and in Corinth in Acts 18. He goes on to Caesarea Galatia, Phrygia, and then he spends three years, three years pastoring this Ephesian church because this is the area where if you're going from Europe to Asia or Asia to Europe, you pass through Ephesus. And he spends three years as their pastor from 53 to 56 AD. And then this is when he goes to Jerusalem and he's falsely accused of taking a Gentile into the part of the temple reserved for Jews and they've arrested him and they put him in jail for four years, the last two of which were in Rome before he is released in 62 AD, which is where we are at the time that he is writing this letter. He has gotten out of jail in Rome. He has gone to Ephesus. He has left Timothy there to straighten things out while he goes on to Philippi just as he had promised, which is in Macedonia, just north of Greece. Now, Timothy's 35, 40 years old. He's been mentored by Paul for more than a decade. And now Paul writes this letter to him, knowing, knowing that when he writes this letter to Timothy, it's going to be read to the whole church. That's the whole purpose of it. 
It's going to be read to the whole church and everyone is going to hear that Timothy is not to allow anybody to teach a different doctrine. That's verse 3. That those devoted to myths, verse 4, who lack a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, verse 5, will cause the church to wander away into vain discussion, verse 6. Those who desire to be teachers of the law are without understanding, he says in verse 7. And he wants the whole church to know that what they should have been teaching is the proper function of the law, the reason the Lord gave it to us. That's verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 that we covered last week. The law was given to establish civil authority. It was given to restrain evil. It was given to reveal the righteousness of God that reminds us that we are sinners in need of the gospel. And that's what he's been entrusted to take to both Jew and Gentile. And so this is when he reminds us now of his gospel. And you see there in verse 12, how's he started? I thank Chris, Chris, that's grace. Echo, I have. Wait a minute, I have grace? Yeah. Why did they translate I have grace, I thank? Why is that? I have grace is an expression of thanksgiving. I am constantly aware of God's grace, which produces in me a never-ending spirit of thanksgiving. That's how verse 12 begins. It's by his grace that I'm continually strengthened for the task of ministry. Matter of fact, the abuse that I endure for the gospel is not something that I would have chosen. To be quite honest with you, I had a much cushier life as a Pharisee. Everybody liked me. But the Lord entrusted me with the gospel. And in contrast to these phony baloney guys, that's in the Greek, who teach myths, who make up stories from Old Testament genealogies, I'm being supplied with ample grace to sustain me in the proclamation of this gospel. And it's a gospel that's going to get me beaten, maligned, thrown into prison. But you know what? I am so thankful, so thankful for this calling. Why is that, Paul? Why? Because Christ our Lord judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Did you catch that? Did you see the word service? He didn't appoint him to just sit and think about Christ. He didn't appoint him to just sit and um, meditate about Christ. Pointing him to his service now why would Paul say that Christ is giving him strength if Paul believed that Christ was dead was he not crucified was he not buried well he wouldn't have see that experience on the road to Damascus Acts 9 when Christ encounters him, that proved to Paul that Christ is alive. He is risen. He is ascended. He is reigning over all. He calls and commissions to take the good news to spiritually dead men. Now, when I say all, why would I say that? Why, why, why would you not limit this to Paul? This is Paul's experience, right? Why would I say all that he calls and commissions? Because that's what Paul said. Do you see it? Look down in your verse. What's it say? Christ Jesus 
our Lord, Timothy, our Lord. Just as he provides all the grace I need, he'll provide all the grace you need. But what does he mean Christ judged him faithful? I, 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 uh, I thought about this. You know, I mean, here he is. He, he's admitting that he's a blasphemer and a persecutor and so forth. So, so what's he talking about here? And then it, 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 it dawned on me that between Christ confronting Saul in Acts 9 and Saul actually being commissioned to do ministry by the church there in Antioch in Acts 13, there's about 9, 10 years there. And during that 9 to 10 years, Paul proves his commitment to Christ. He proves, he proves his ability to get along with others. He proves his faithfulness to sound doctrine. He proves his boldness and his courage. In other words, the Lord tested him and proved him to be faithful. And that's when he then takes off on these missionary journeys. And the result is numerous churches are started. Numerous churches. So what is the big deal about Chris Echo? The grace for which he's so thankful What's the big deal about that? He reminds you of his past. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemous, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. You know, when he says formerly I was a blasphemer, uh, not many people start their testimony that way. I've never read of anybody starting their testimony that way. And as a rule, people don't like this, do they? Do you? Most people like to think that it's because they are good people that they made a decision for Christ. And therefore, the Lord not only owes them salvation now, I mean, my goodness, he's, he's obligated to kind of be their divine Santa Claus. And they will get angry with the Lord if he doesn't answer their prayers the way that they want them answered, when they want them answered. And if they are to suffer any at all, what is wrong with you, Lord? Where are you? Because we have such a distorted view of ourselves. We have a distorted view of our Lord. Saul doesn't. He understands. Formerly I was a blasphemer. Is there any evidence between Paul's former life and his current life that would indicate that he's a changed man? He said, I was a blasphemous Blasphemous. That's a combination of four words. You know what it means? Injuring with stupid words. One who uses stupid words to injure other people. Any of you, just curious, don't raise your hand. Don't elbow your mate, okay? But any of you prior to knowing Christ, did you ever have a problem with your tongue? Short fuse, hot temper? Could you be just about as mean and nasty when things didn't go your way as just about anybody you knew and you were proud of it? Oh, man, you were proud of the fact you could put people in their place. You could tell them what they ought to do and what they ought to believe and how they ought to be. I mean, you're proud of that. And then you were confronted by Christ. And his grace just just overcomes you to the point that, that you've put a bridle on that thing. 
You've put a bridle on that thing that James says defiles the whole person. That James says is set on fire by hell itself. That James says is full of deadly poison. What was impossible for you to tame by sheer willpower is now brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. Your temperament has not changed. You still have tendencies to do that. But you've changed. You have changed. Now that's not to say that you can't have flashbacks or slip-ups. But the stupid words that injure people, that used to just roll off of your tongue, setting relationships on fire, that just no longer characterizes who you are, right? Right? Instead, you are quick to apologize. You're real quick to apologize. You pray not to be offensive. It is not a fruit of the Spirit to be offensive. And you're quick to repent when you do verbally hurt someone. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. This is what he used to be like. I mean, he was going into the homes. This was his intent to go into the homes of Christians in Damascus to curse Christ, the Christ in whom they believed. He was a first century king of hate speech. Man, he hated Christ. And he hated the people who gathered in his name. That's the whole reason he requested permission from the high priest to go to Damascus. Do you realize Damascus is 150 miles north of Jerusalem? This is a week's journey. This is like somebody leaving here and going to Indianapolis, going to Columbus, Ohio, going to Charleston, West Virginia. Why? Just because I want to round up those Christians, I'm going to blaspheme that Jesus that they believe in. And I'm going to put them on trial because they're causing us problems. And we're going to put them to death. He was a notorious terrorist. Acts 9.21 When Saul returns to Jerusalem and there is not a long chain gang of Christians to be tried and murdered but he comes back and begins to preach the gospel he once hated, people couldn't believe their eyes. They couldn't believe it. Verse 26, he tried to join the disciples and none of them wanted to have anything to do with him. No, 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 no. You're not one of us. <laughs> we know who you are. You stay away, you blasphemous murderer. Is that who you are, Paul? No. That's who I was. That's who I was. That's not me anymore. That's not me. What happened to you? I received mercy. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Which doesn't mean that he lacked information. Listen, Saul was well educated. Saul had a degree from one of the finest rabbinical schools available. He had plenty of academic credits. But he said, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, I knew all about Christ. 
I just didn't know him. I, I didn't understand how foolishly my unbelief was causing me to live at the time. See, Paul was there in Acts 7 when Stephen was extremely clear with the gospel. I mean, Stephen was preaching from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. There is no way you could miss the gospel and how Christ was the fulfillment of all of God's word that had been given for centuries. Saul was not ignorant of the gospel. He was just ignorant because he refused to believe the gospel. Highly intelligent people often conclude that their great learning makes them smarter and better informed about life. And they really don't need Christ. You know why? Because they've got money. And they've got degrees and whatever they like they can buy. You know what they do? They usually are very proficient in making a mess out of their lives. Living foolishly. Paul says, that's my testimony. That's it. And so how did you escape this ignorance, Paul? Well, first of all, I received the mercy that the Lord did not strike me dead when I deserved it. And secondly, the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This concept of overflowed is like a river that's overrun its banks. It's just flooded the entire area. The Lord showed me mercy while I was still acting foolishly in my unbelief. On my way to persecute him in Damascus. Boy, did he show me mercy. And then Christ, man, when he confronted me, he flooded me, flooded me with faith and with love. See, Paul wants you to understand, listen, my great learning as a Pharisee, my great passion for religion, my great commitment to keeping the law, my great desire to be righteous through ritual and in ceremony did not result in me being a good person. It just didn't. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an outrageously violent man acting ignorantly in my unbelief. Now, he's addressing Timothy with regards to those in the church who are teaching different doctrines, who are devoting themselves to myths that lead to vain discussion, those who lack a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith that are going to take the church down a path that believes that if you don't marry, somehow or another, that makes you closer to God. And if you don't eat certain foods, that somehow makes you closer to the Lord. And he's simply saying, that is so foolish. I've been down that path. It's a dead end. You can't become righteous through religion. Y'all remember Bob Shuler? You know who I'm talking about? Some of you older people surely remember Bob. He was on TV all the time. You know, had the stark white hair, the sage of self-esteem. And he'd, emo he'd emerge on Sundays in that flowing black robe and he'd crank up the organ in the Crystal Cathedral before he would denounce any notion of us being sinners in need of grace. Do you know that? Bob hated that notion. He was the power of positive thinking guru. He got that from Norman Vincent Peale. I'm here to build your self-esteem, to make you feel good about yourself. The Apostle Paul says, and that's blasphemy. 
Christ didn't come to help us become better. He didn't come to, to show us a better way. He didn't come to make us more religious. That's all myth. It's going to lead you into vain discussion too because what you'll end up doing, you'll start arguing among yourselves about which denomination is more right. You know, this denomination does this this way and this denomination does that that way. And, and, and you know, we kind of look to, to this person as, as the head of our church, whether it's Calvin or Luther or whoever it is. And, you know, they start arguing among themselves how they practice this ritual, how they practice that ritual. You want the truth? He says, you want something trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance? Let me tell you the truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the protos, the first, the worst. And you catch that? He does not put it in past tense. I am. It's in present tense. What does he mean, I am? Do you remember the two guys that Christ spoke about in Luke 18? The, the two guys that go down to the temple to pray. And one is standing there and he says, Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not like other men, particularly like this tax collector over here <laughs> what a low life he is I fast and I tithe and I'm so religious and so righteous that I don't extort money from people and I don't commit adultery oh goodness Lord I mean if everybody was just as good as I am how wonderful this world would be and while he's boasting about all of his attributes the tax collector the man the Jews hated because he worked for Rome. He lifts his eyes towards heaven. And he says, God, be merciful, please. Be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner. Who did Christ say was justified before the Lord that day? The one who realized he was the sinner in need of mercy and grace. We are not only saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, whose atoning death at Calvary satisfied God's wrath for our sin. No, no. We are sustained by his grace as we continually remember that we fall short daily. That's why he starts off with, I thank Chris Echo. I thank you, Lord. I thank you. You show me a prideful Christian and I'll show you an oxymoron. Did you realize that every religion on earth is for good people? All of them are for good people who do all the things that that religion calls for them to do. Only in Christ are bad people saved. Only in Christ. If you're a good self-righteous, religious, judgmental, holier than just about anybody else that you know type of person, Saul of Tarsus would say amen to you. Been there, done that, he would have embraced it. If you are someone who comes on Sunday overflowing, overflowing with faith, love, and gratitude because because of all people, I mean, of all the people on earth, you have the privilege to worship and to give and to serve and to be counted faithful 
because Christ came into the world to save the sinner you are. Then the Apostle Paul would say, Amen to that. His views changed. And here's how your testimony ought to read. If you, if you are not a member here and you would like to become a member here and you don't know how to start your testimony, let me help you this morning, all right? Just write this out. Here's how you start your testimony. I am a sinner. You got that? I am a sinner. Now, everything that follows, I am a sinner, ought to parallel Scripture. You say, what Scripture? Well, there's a lot of Scriptures. There's a ton of them. Won't have time to go through all of them this morning. Let me give you one that is just about as clear as any that you're going to find. And he wrote it to this church. Here, here's a good one for you to use. But, this is Ephesians 2, 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, he made me alive together with Christ. It is by grace that I have been saved. Now, that's a good place to start. That's a good way to start your testimony. That's the testimony that Paul wrote to the church in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 4, right before he wrote this letter. Now, let me just give you a little note here that will help you in the writing of your testimony. Whenever you insert your goodness, whatever it is, whatever it is you've accomplished in church and, and so forth, whenever you insert your goodness into his grace, you distort the gospel. As a religious zealot, Saul persecuted the body of Christ. After he encounters Christ, what's he do? He begins to establish and build up the body of Christ everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes. So that's one of the reasons that we support ministries that are beyond ourselves here. Uh, in Tanzania, uh, there are some relatives of uh, Thomas and Jen King. Uh, about, I don't remember how long ago we started supporting them, but I know over the last three or four years, we've, uh, we've sent about $28,000 to them to help them with their ministry there. In Uganda, the SOS ministry, it stands for Sufficiency of Scriptures. Uh, it's led by Shannon Hurley, this guy that I met at the uh, Shepherds Conference. And um, uh, Shannon's done an unbelievable job over there. And we've sent uh, almost $60,000 in the last four or five years to, for the orphanage and for the pastor training. And uh, we, just, we, we just want to partner with him in the job that he's doing there. One of the young ladies in our church, uh, she uh, married uh, a graduate of master's. And uh, they then went to Bulgaria, the Fishers. And we've sent them about 26000 over the last uh, four years. Uh, a couple in our church that was baptized here. Many of you know them, Justin and Laura Shriver. Uh, they're in Kazakhstan. Many of you support them directly, and we as a church have been um, providing for Justin's uh, educational training uh, that he might be more effective in his witness to, to Muslims there. We do that more collectively. Uh, in Honduras, we've been supporting that church for about 20 years. Uh, we've sent several mission teams down there and have built a, them a new educational building. And a couple of years ago, we helped them build a new worship center. And you met Master Pelvin. Uh, Master Pelvin? Did I, I just reversed the M and the P there. Um, Pastor Melvin. 
uh, a few months ago when, uh, when he was here visiting. Uh, but we also have a, a stateside ministry that we've been supporting in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, Zach Thurman asked us about, I think it's about five years ago, to help him establish a church near the campus of Colorado State. There just wasn't uh, much of, a, of an impact for the gospel in that location. And so we've been doing that on a monthly basis. In addition to, in 2020, we sent them an extra twelve or 15000 for some new audio equipment when they moved into their, their building. Uh, in 2021, we provided the finances for their staff to um, uh, have an outreach to students there on the campus of Colorado State. And now they're hoping to establish an outreach church in Durango, Colorado. That's about six hours southwest of where they're, they're located. And so that might be the, uh, the next church that we end up helping to uh, support in the future. But we wanted to close this morning with uh, a thank you message. You know, Paul says, Lord, I thank you for what you have done for us. Well, we, out of a heart of thanksgiving, are also grateful. And, and uh, these that we partner with for the gospel, they are thankful. And so this is Zach Thurman in Fort Collins, Colorado, one of our partners for the gospel who wanted you to see this video in the close of this message.